It's the moment you've all been waiting for. The Forum at 8 with Sakina Kamwendo on AM Live. The Forum at 8 with Sakina Kamwendo. At seven minutes after eight, and this morning on the Forum at Eight, we're talking terrorism. Now, the UN Secretary General Ban Ki Moon has expressed his concern about reprisals or further discrimination directed against Muslims in the aftermath of the Paris terrorist attacks. He has warned that such action would exacerbate alienation on which terrorists feed. And Ban Ki Moon was addressing a Security Council meeting on security, development, and the root causes of conflicts. Show and Rice, please compile this report. The provisional agenda for this meeting is security, development and the root causes of conflict. Ban Ki-moon again offered his condolences to the people of France and reiterated the fairly broadly held view that no action targeting innocents could justify the acts of terror, whether in Paris, Beirut, Baghdad or elsewhere. In the aftermath of other terrorist bombings in recent days in Beirut and Baghdad, and the apparent bombing of a Russian airplane, we see the continuing peril of terrorism and indeed the mounting threat from Daesh. No grievance or cause can justify such acts. He urged the world to come together to defeat terrorism within the confines of the rule of law and used his platform in the council to again link terrorist acts to a complex number of issues. Today's violent conflict and violent extremism are often rooted in a mix of exclusion, inequality, mismanagement of natural resources, corruption, oppression, governance failures, and frustration and alienation that accompany a lack of jobs and opportunities. Yet our responses have not caught up to these realities. We are not yet properly integrating United Nations action across the interdependent pillars of our work, peace, development, and human rights. He called for an integrated approach that focused more on prevention, an approach that has a sharper focus on human rights, calling violations the best early warning signs of trouble to come in the future. Human rights upfront calls for three types of change within the UN system. Cultural change, to ensure staff recognize prevention and protection as a core responsibility. A second, operational change to streamline our analysis and deploy teams with a small footprint to assist national authorities before crises emerge. And third, earlier and more transparent engagement with the national authorities and other member states on deteriorating situations. Mr. Ban emphasized the need to strengthen coherence among all actors, be that from a development, security or peace-building perspective, while calling for predictable financing for the political interventions and mediation work required when hotspots begin to emerge. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. And brings us up to 10 minutes after 8. And this morning on the Forum at 8, if you've just tuned in, we're talking about terrorism. And I guess aptly so, given what is happening. It's not that this is something that had gone away suddenly. It's been there, you know, some cases more publicized than others. Uh, but of course, in the wake of what happened over the weekend, it's uh, f- placed, uh, you know, squarely on the table once again. And speaking to us about this this morning, uh, Professor John Stremler, as well as uh, Professor Farid Isak. 
and the lines are open 891 as the call-in number. You can SMS us on 34701 or you can tweet or Facebook us at AM Live on SAFM. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to come through this morning. I'm delighted to be with you. Now, uh, firstly, I mean, just looking at um, uh, this issue, and, and it's difficult to even find a starting point uh, for these discussions. But um, if we are to use uh, what happened in Paris over the weekend as such a starting point, then, you know, we look <coughs> at what is being said, the conversations that are being had around this. And at the center is, you know, the issue of language and what is um, being described as the root causes of the terrorism that we are talking about, radicalism, uh, radicalized Islam is what we hear very often. Um, what's your take on that, Professor Stremler? I think we all ought to take a deep breath and, uh, and think what's really happened here. We have a group of no more than a dozen young men in their 20s, led by apparently one fellow, this Belgian uh, Arab, uh, Abdul Abbasad, And the world is going crazy. Uh, The politicians are politicizing this so that we're not united, in fact, as Ban Ki-moon was calling us to be, in terms of trying to understand the phenomenon and then have it in some perspective. So I think what's missing, and that's why this is a good time to talk about it, is what is that perspective, especially for South Africans, a very diverse country that manages this diversity quite well. So... um from what Professor Stremlau has just been saying, uh, Professor Isak, uh, that, you know, it's, it's, it's this little group of people and uh, there would seem to be quite a number of those, you know, scattered all over the planet somewhere. But we hear that it is incumbent upon all Muslims to take responsibility for what is happening here. Um, <clears throat> and that is, of course, what I find uh, deeply problematic. Um, I think the one is to say that, look, this is done in my name. I'm sorry, it is not done in my name. It may be claimed to have been done in the name of my faith, but it's not done in my name. But the other one is to insist that because it was done by a Muslim, therefore all Muslims must now be clear to take a stand. It's like in South Africa, the reality is that the dominant face of crime is black. To then suspect every black person of being a criminal, unless he or she has not denounced crime, that is racism. You must continue to assume that every black person, until he or she is proven to be a criminal, is not a criminal. Even though the vast majority of charged and, um, and found guilty criminals in South Africa may be black. And so, I mean, I, for one, I refuse to succumb to this kind of racism. I would think that my record of nonviolence, that the generally nonviolent nature of Islam in South Africa, the ordinariness of Muslim lives as workers, as students, as neighbors, as professionals, the ordinary lives of should convince our non-Muslim neighbors that we are peaceful. So when something happens in France, I don't want all my neighbors to come and knock on my door and to ask me if they are safe with me around. 
could I just give the other side of that as well? Because it's complimentary. And I think as a Christian, am I supposed to go to war now? When President Hollande of France says this is total war, it's total war against ISIL, maybe, but this is not World War II. You know, this terrible, terrible killing in this theater on Saturday night killed 120 people, and they say it's the most killed since World War II, but <laughs> this is not total war. This is politics by another means, for sure. But the politicians, and I think Obama, by the way, has been very good on this and saying, listen, we have to keep this in some sort of perspective. I don't want to be grouped into the enemy of the uh, the Muslims, for heaven's sakes. Some of them are my, my best friends. This is a country which has tried to come to terms, as we were just hearing, with diversity. And the problem with the Europeans is they had all their ethnic wars hundreds of years ago. Now they're pretty homogeneous countries. And so suddenly they're all excited. And I just wish they'd calm down. But, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's questions like these because uh, they are somewhat misleading, but also um, don't they point to some sort of agenda, um, a hidden agenda, if you will, of what we are trying to make this out to be? Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I think that there is certainly an agenda as far as these bombings are concerned. I think that it is a Daesh Agenda. Daesh is the acronym for uh, for ISIS in Arabic, mm-hmm. um, and the one advantage with Daesh is that it has more sinister connotations. It literally means uh, terror, um, and so in much of the Arab world, people refer to it as Daesh instead of the Islamic State or ISIS. But I'm happy to use both. I think that there is an agenda, and the gen the agenda is. Uh, twofold. The one is to establish a state that is very, very authoritarian, a state that is nearly a a fascist-like state, a medieval state, based on a very distorted idea of what Islam looked like in the 6th century. That is the first agenda. And the second agenda is to destabilize as many and to inflict terror on as many of those that are standing in the way of this agenda by bombing them in Iraq or in Iran. So all of those that have been a part of this uh, actual either military coalition or what ISIS may even see as a cultural hegemonic coalition, the West, in crude terms, you know, Western civilization, And so I think that there is actually an agenda. I think that uh, uh, while, of course, I don't agree with this, I don't think that it is proper to describe it as senseless violence. It doesn't make any sense to us. But those uh, murderers, they pretty much have an agenda. It's not a state, though. It is yet a, a, a movement. It is racist, I think, by virtue of the fact that they're talking about a kind of a religious supremacy. And so consequently, I think we're playing into their hands, we, those who get terribly excited about reacting to this. And I'm uneasy with all the military use of force there, but the states are going to do that. But France puts 10 planes in the air. This is not an armada. They're trying to deal with a political problem in their context, The Americans are dealing with a political context problem with the right and the left fighting over this. South Africans at least can be a reasonable voice and say, 
<laughs> you know, that we live in a very pluralistic world, folks, and if we don't believe in civic nationalism and constitutionalism and rule of law, we're nowhere. And, um, you know, um, how much responsibility should the West, as it were, shoulder for what is going on right now, Professor? <clears throat> Uh, the one is, look, you know, one doesn't want to get to the point where you say the West is responsible. I think in some ways responsibility is a complicated thing. Um, <clears throat> if you nudge me and you nudge me and you push me and you push me and then I get really angry and I slap you, I never, I cannot walk away from the fact that It is my responsibility that I decided to slap you. I must own up to my response to what you were doing. But it is also for you to reflect how much did I contribute to the creation of an atmosphere. George Bush did it. Right. (laughs) We can agree on that, I think, Uh, going into Iraq. Absolutely. But I think that we must also accept responsibility for our responses. So to this extent, I think that when a group of Saudi Arabian, largely Saudi Arabian, attacked the Twin Towers and the Pentagon on September the 11th in 2001, when as a result of that, you then go and attack not the country where these people come from and where they were ideologized into a certain fundamentalist type of religion, Saudi Arabia, because they are your allies, they are your oil partners, they are the hands that feed you in some ways. Instead, you go and invade another country, Afghanistan a pretty broken country that needed some kind of stability and then brought some Arabs in, da-da-da. And the overflow of all of this then, the spread of that kind of fundamentalism, you elevate one dictator at a particular time in the name of Saddam Hussein, you glorify him in the names of the, or, or you demonize him in the eyes of the whole world, You then send your armies in. You kind of half blame him for uh, September the 11th, uh, 2001. Um, The country disintegrates completely. Uh, The Sunnis are demobilized. They feeling alienated. A whole lot of other... And then you have Daesh and the ongoing bombing of uh, of the country and uh, the fragmentation of the country. And this, I mean, you know... Terrorism isn't a thing, a tap that you can turn on and off. You can't unleash violence the one moment against your enemies, and as soon as you've conquered them, you tell them, okay, guys, go home now. It doesn't happen like this. All of these people are on the loose. They're now looking for other ideals. And this ideal, unfortunately, now clashes with the general Western interest in the area, let alone the damage that it is doing to those Muslim societies. I mean, very often, you know, we think of ISIS as a problem for the West. Far more tens and thousands of Muslims, and of course, especially the Yazidis, this minority sect uh, in uh, Syria, have been killed as a result of ISIS. So while we spare uh, tears and prayers for the people of Paris, 
let's not forget the thousands of Muslims um, that have died at the hands of these uh, terrorists. This could get a policy discussion going that probably would bore your readers, but would be very interesting to Prince and myself about Afghanistan and Iraq and the mistakes that were made. The point I think I want to make is two. One, it does matter who gets elected president of the United States. Barack Obama takes a different approach to America's engagement in the region than does George W. Bush, and it will make a big difference who gets elected in 2016. The other thing is a very local uh, issue. I always admired my students particularly the Islamic women, who were very devout but also very progressive. And they would take in their vacation. That wasn't a great many of them, but they'd go and they'd teach in the region. They'd talk about what it was like to live in a country which is diverse and pluralistic and has a, a penchant for getting along with each other. That helps a lot because we all know that that region of the world has been left behind technologically, economically, and the like. It needs strong political institutions, and they aren't there, and your reference to Saudi Arabia is a good reminder of that. So if they need that, um, is it the West's responsibility to export their brand of uh, democracy to regions of the world who may not have asked for such? Who, Who is the West? I mean, it's a very big conglomerate. And the European nations operate differently than a very diverse America. America is going to be a non-white majority by the middle of the century. They're just different places. I think it's incumbent on all of us, as we think about our place in the world, to appreciate that fact and to realize politics really does predominate. So do we allow people to choose for themselves what they want, um, uh, Professor Eshak, (coughs) or do we tell them, actually, you know what, that is very sixth century, and this is where you ought to be in 2015? Well, I do think that we need to be very aware of cultural arrogance and cultural imperialism. I think we need to be very, very sensitive to this kind of thing. Uh, In Africa, for example, we value the aged. We value elderly people. What do ordinary Africans make of uh, the institution in many parts of the the West, also amongst whites uh, in South Africa and not yet amongst Indians, uh, where, for example, when people reach the age of 70 or 80, you put them in old age homes? What prevents an African nation from going and sending in rescue operations right into the United States because they heard that, you know, uh, there's a place there that when you reach the age of 80 years old, your children one Sunday afternoon take you and they go and drop you there. And if your children are nice, then they will come and visit you once a month. And if they are not so nice, they will come and see you once a year. And if they're really bad, they will never come and visit you. Only come and pick up your body when you die so that they can have your inheritance. Then this African country decides, let's go and invade those countries and liberate all of those mamas and all of those tatas because it's unimaginable that people can do this to their elderly folk. Mm. We don't have the power to do it, but it's also wrong to do it. And so I think while we struggle to have universal values around rights, around gender equality, around inclusivity, these are ideas that we struggle for, that we preach and that you teach. These aren't ideas that you can enforce with armies and with bombs 
and with drones. Well, uh, the lines are open. 891 Great to see you enjoying the panel this morning. Uh, Tabang says, thanks very much for this panel for being honest about uh, George Bush and, uh, you know, his involvement in all of this. Uh, Charles Rembe asks, what exactly do these fundamentalist groups want uh, if they cannot get it via democratic means in their own countries? Do we, uh, well, <clears throat> these groups are not interested in democracy. For them, their interpretation of, they have synonymized themselves with God. We speak for God. We are God's representatives on earth. And so it's, what does the Bible say? It's not, what do I think the Bible says? Mm. How do I interpret the Bible? What does the Bible say? And so their interpretation has become synonymous with the book. And the book is synonymous with God. And so don't come and talk to me about democracy. Democracy is the will of the people. The people are evil. I speak for God. And so there is no space for democracy in their thinking. Could a democracy, um, you know, some democratic establishment, not also very well result in a group uh, like um, ISIS, you know, taking root where the people say, this is what we want well, in a Nazi particular Germany. region? <laughs> well, and, and, and let's remember African history. There was a lot of quick independence and then one election, and then you have these entrenched aging autocrats. I think it's to South Africa's great credit that when it preached for the African Union, it created an institution with the rights to intervene for human rights reasons, what Ban Ki-moon was talking about. When you have human rights abuses, that's an early warning. Today's human rights abuses are tomorrow's refugees or tomorrow's terrorists. But that takes hard work for all citizens to be involved and think that their actions, their responsibilities, and their rights matter. And South Africa has got to keep vigilant about its democracy. We're having a big debate right now now about the health of this democracy. It can never be perfect. It can only be perfected. And so consequently, it's hard work. And I think what what Professor is saying is exactly right. We've got to work at it. Well, we're not going to take calls at this moment. Uh, 891-104-208 will come to that after the news break. But uh, let me read a few messages to take us up to uh, 8.30. Fanyana Dimufukeng says, Terrorism and political hatred are one and the same thing. Israel's uh, bombardment of Palestine is terrorism. Um, Sisi says, uh, Firstly, let's start by responding directly to this question. What causes terrorism to begin with? Um, Major General says, ISIS doesn't belong to any religious group. They are just murderous psychopaths, uh, vicious people who enjoy killing and destroying. And Chingana says, uh, equating crime committed by individuals of a race group with terrorism committed in the name of religion is unjustifiable. It's your favorite time of the morning. The Forum at 8 with Sakina Kamwendo. Favorite time of the morning on AM Live. We're talking terrorism this morning, and um, uh, David and um, a few other people, and Togazizi, you know, um, uh, people really enjoying the views expressed by the panel this morning, and um, some others, though, um, asking uh, more questions. Let me uh, put this one out. All religions are at each other's throat. Uh, Nigeria, it's Christians and Muslims. Terrorists are criminally motivated, says P-Man. And I'm reading it because I wanted to bring us to what's happening on the African continent at the moment. Um, you've got, uh, you know, what's happening in the Horn of Africa. You've got um, uh, Boko Haram doing their thing there towards the West. Uh, so, so, so just talk to us about that, Prof. 
Uh, well, first of all, I think that it's very important that we understand that society unfolds both in terms of horizontally and uh, historically. When we talk about uh, religions are at each other, um, <coughs> in some ways, yes, there are dimensions of religion to all of these uh, conflicts. But we've also, for example, had, say, we've had apartheid, uh, we've had the massacre of the Herero people uh, in Namibia by the Germans, um, uh, and so Africa has had a long history. Then we've had uh, intertribal warfare in South Africa. And uh, sometimes, of course, religion, religion also plays a role in this conflict. Uh, Africa, for since, I mean, colonialism, and I think even before that, has unfortunately had a long history of Christian-Muslim conflict also, particularly accentuated in, uh, in a country like Nigeria, for example. Um, but there were also other forms of warfare, say, uh, with the Ibus uh, in Nigeria. Remember that long, the Biafran mm-hmm. struggle uh, in Nigeria that led to this long, bitter war. And then we've had the North and the South uh, war uh, inside the Sudan, and a number of other kinds of uh, the Hutus and the Tutsis. Uh, so, in, in the Congo. For, so, I don't think it's proper to characterize all African conflict as religious conflict. That's the first thing. The second thing, it's not proper to say that all religions are fighting with each other. On the whole, in large parts of Africa, Muslims and Christians have lived pretty much in harmony with each other. The one problem, Sakina, that I always point out, you know, if you have a white sheet and you make two or three black dots on that sheet and you ask people, what do you see? People will not see, I see a white sheet. People will say, I see two black dots. Inside South Africa, for example, how well have Hindus and Muslims and Jews not live alongside each other? African traditionalist religion has lived alongside Christianity in large parts of the continent. Mm. So I don't think that we should... I think we are here today to talk about terrorism, and it is proper. But I think that we also need to remind ourselves that the fact that there is a dramatic moment on the world stage or the European stage at the moment that forces itself into the media, onto our airwaves at the moment... It should not detract us from the fact that the picture of the world as far as religion is concerned is essentially a white sheet. That the picture of our country more specifically as far as religious communities living alongside each other is a white sheet. Now call us in and commentators and the news and so on in some ways It is your responsibility. I mean, you will not sell if you talk about a white sheet every day. Uh, So in some ways, I understand how all of this works, but we should not lose perspective. Mm. And just on that point, uh, there's uh, an SMS here that says Muslim lives are very cheap and quite acceptable to kill Muslims en masse uh, from uh, crusades to present Palestine, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, etc. And the media bias adds to that, says this person, an unsigned SMS. Uh, Prof. Stremlau, hold on to that. Let's just go to the lines. 891 Suleiman in Durban, good morning. Good morning, Sakira. Welcome. Good morning, uh, ma'am, the professor just nailed put uh, nailed the uh, uh, nailed and uh, put the nail on the hammer. Well, sorry, well, how could I say that? He just nailed the, the problem that the Muslim world has. Number one, he says 
about the three black dots he's talking about. The Muslim world has lived through Israeli occupation of the Palestinian land. Ma'am, I guarantee the world, you solve that problem of Palestine and Israel. 90% of the problems of the Muslim world of them will, will go away. That's my guarantee. I can guarantee you that. Because of this year, Palestine, Israel has been held by the West, protected by the United Nations, in putting the yoke on the Muslims for, for, for so many years. And hence, the population around the Muslim world, all of them, that anger that comes out is based on Palestine. Solve the Palestinian problem, 90% of the Muslim problems around the world will be gone. Uh, the Americans started off by supply by by by, by creating Osama um, bin Laden. Now it's gone to ISIS. It's the same thing. Al Qaeda, the very same thing. All these groups are the same thing. All of them are following, are fighting for Palestine, and the Israelis keep us fighting and burning fires in Muslim countries, so that they the, the the problem the focus is off them. This is what I see as a problem of the world, and this is what I have to say about this. That's my contribution for this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much, Suleiman. Salim is also in Durban. Good morning. Good good morning. You see, they've been bombing and bombing. Millions and billions of tons of bombs have been thrown in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and they've been killing people like you're killing cockroaches. The simple thing is, if you're going to continue attacking this country, you're going to get the response. It's not working. For the last 25 years or so, it hasn't worked. You've got to look at another way to solve this problem. If you don't go down and sit and find a political solution to the problem, this will be forever going on. It's nothing to do with Islam. It's a fight that is taking place. The bombs got to stop on the people of the Muslim world. They are killing the Muslims, and this is the response they are receiving for killing and bombing for years and years and years. Russia, this plane was bombed because Russia entered the war. France is in the war, they got the response. So every country that is bombing Syria and Iraq are getting a response. It's not solving the problem. They've got to find a different way or a different platform to sort the problem out. Thank you, Salim. Bashir in Indonesia. Hi. Look, you know, I'm a little concerned that, you know, we look at ISIS simply as a kind of a religious, extremist religious organization. Because, you know, uh, if one uh, looks at, for example, Cam- Cambodia, I think John Pilger made a good point. He said, Paul Pot in Cambodia had about two th- had about a thousand followers. Nobody took notice of them. After a hundred days of bombing from, or a thousand days of bombing from America, all of a sudden, Paul Pot became a force to be reckoned with. And so, you know, ISIS did not sort of just spring from uh, a, 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 a vacuum. You know, uh, they, they were probably there. You know, uh, lots of small groups have uh, ex- extremist uh, views. Uh, and, and, and they, you know, would have remained a very small group. But, you know, if, if you're going to go out there and start bombing people, uh, the, the ordinary people leave. Uh, the people that stay, remain behind, uh, you know, are, are usually extremists. And, uh, you know, as a result, uh, groups like ISIS get formed. And I think the, the Western response to what has happened in Paris is simply, well, now we are going to uh, be even more merciless. So I don't see how that is going to solve the problem. Thank you, Thank you. Uh, Bashir. Let's speak to Zuki in East London. Good morning, Zuki. Hi, morning, morning. Um, I want to reiterate what your previous callers are saying, and I, I do believe that this is um, a creation of, of the United States and their 
interests in oil and them just going around the world and policing um, um, uh, states around the world and also, you know, just wanting to export their way of life to the rest of the world. So I do agree with them on that. I, I, I also want to say this, and at the risk of sounding like a conspiracy theorist, that um, um, I worry that these attacks may be engineered uh, for, for the purposes of these countries, you know, finding legitimate reasons to, 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 to state to the international community on why they have to go into these uh, regions and, and bomb and attack and so forth. Uh, an example would be, you know, um, there, there's been an extensive uh, material of work written on 9-11 and how it was engineered by the Pentagon and so forth. And, and I know that some of it may be conspiracy, but I do worry that some of it may be engineered and that there might be something very sinister behind all of this. My last point is this. Um, I'm, I'm a strong supporter of the state of Israel, and here's the reason why. I'm a black South African, and, and um, uh, Africa has been colonized for years, we know that. And, and uh, only now we're starting to talk about actually taking our land back, land that was taken from us hundreds of years ago. And I believe it's the same thing with the state of Israel. I mean, historically, the land of Israel belongs to Jews. And, and, and now that they want to take possession of it, as we want to take possession of our land and our economies in Africa, I don't understand why we would not understand that concept. Uh, that's, that's just my okay. take on it. Thanks for that, Zuki. Uh, Miles Budu in Nigel, good morning. Good day, Sakina and your listeners. I, in fact, I wanted to very briefly engage the professor peacefully, if needs be, Challenging also very peacefully. Which one? I've got two. The other professor that is talking on behalf of the Muslim movement. Oh, I'm not speaking on behalf of the Muslim. I'm an academic at the University of Johannesburg. (laughs) I speak on behalf of nobody but myself. Prof, can you just uh, remind me what's what's your full name? Uh, It's it's Farid Esak. Prof Farid, you know, I just want to peacefully engage you for a minute or two. You must have uh, heard of an old <coughs> adage that says a uh, black man is always a suspect. And I want to also tell you and maybe remind you also that uh, when we were colonized, uh, we were also criminalized. And the decriminalization project has not started and we are in denial as the majority of the people of this country that we first need to decriminalize ourselves before we start to engage on many, many other issues, including this one. I thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Miles. Uh, then uh, Dr. Clement in Johannesburg. Good morning. Uh, Sakina, thank you for taking my call. Now, you know, I, I, I'm a dentist. I work with a, a group of dentists, some of which are Muslim. And there seems to be a common agreement that among my, my Muslim colleagues, that this so-called terrorism thing is created by actually the West particularly America, better to, to find an excuse to to attack their own areas of interest around the world, and uh, notably around the Muslim world. Their terrorism doesn't really exist. There are no Muslims that are killing Christians or killing other people. It's all a conspiracy cooked up by America. I don't know what your, your panelists think about it, because I was caught by surprise. And these are staunch Muslims, good okay. people. Uh, and they believe, yeah, they believe that terrorism is, is, is an American cook-up. 
Dr. Clement, um, I shall put it to the panel, although I'm not too sure how, uh, you know, these conspiracy theories are going to help us here. Uh, but let's go to Cape Town. Uh, Kalala, good morning. Morning. Uh, Sakina, thanks for taking my call. I would love to say, instead of us start talking about Muslim and what they're doing, because not only Muslim, who are terrorists. Anyway, I'm not Muslim, I'm not talking on behalf of them. But let us first see the cause, Sakina. Let's go back when uh, uh, Jacques Chirac was the president of France. Do you know he was a very good friend of all those Muslim nations? Then from Sarkozy up to now, they become the best enemies. So the point is, these guys are coming in Africa to impose people democracy. Okay, actually democracy is a good thing, but we cannot bomb, throw bomb by giving people democracy. So I'm not actually throwing a party for what happened to French people, but these are consequences of what they have caused. So please, the world always people tend to focus on the reaction, but they don't want to see the action. So for us to end this story, let us first see the action. Why is it happening, Sakina? So that's what I would love your guests to tell us, because let's not say Muslim and Muslim, because not all Muslims are terrorists. Okay, thanks, Kalala. ZB in Durban? Hello, Sakina. Uh, I just want to say, you know, there was an incident that took place in Johannesburg in Transvaal a few years ago where where Muslims were accused. Uh, They accused without notifying and knowing the truth. Where Afrikaners have uh, a few uh, mischievous, not all, a few mischievous Afrikaners uh, bombed a temple in Transvaal or in Johannesburg, in Kauteng, but accused the Muslims, which is grossly unfair, but when they investigated, they found that it was the Afrikaners. Because the Afrikaners wanted the Hindus and the Muslims to fight with each other. And it's not right that they become the middlemen, but nobody um, uh, went and bombed the whole Afrikaner country. Right? And so, from, because normally when Muslims do something wrong, a few Muslims, a handful of mischievous Muslims do something wrong, you bomb the entire country down, which is grossly unfair. Nobody, no Muslims have done that to other countries. Maybe they have done it in uh, the country that's doing it to them, like Britain. Like Britain has been doing it to them, and maybe they're doing it to Britain. Right. But it's not right to uh, answer uh, other call have, uh, called earlier on and said, you know what, first investigate before you accuse and before you bomb the country down. Thank you. Thank Find you. the mischievous people. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, ZB. Uh, Jog Matthew, a guy in Cosmos City. Good morning. Yep. Uh, good, good, good morning, Mom. This is Shekina. I just want to make a contribution. I listened to the history of conflict that uh, the professor have given. Uh, citing an example of the Biafra conflict and so many other conflicts in Africa, and particularly the one in this place, Nigeria, uh, I just want to make it very clear that uh, most most of the conflicts are more related to land issues and not mostly this thing, religion. So the contribution that I've always been trying to make is that at a particular point in time, the problem is that the Islamic teachers teach something that is wrong regarding jihad. So what needs to be done, what I suggest needs to be done is that the main way, the, 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 the major way for which we can fight against this kind of act is in the hands of Islamic scholars and Islamic teachers, whereby they need to teach their people that Islam does not teach fighting. As long as we did not admit that there is a need for Islamic scholars to interpret the Quran properly and teach people that Islam does, does not teach about fighting, it's going to be difficult for us to have a solution to this problem. But isn't that a gross generalization? And he's gone. Okay.
Uh, before you actually respond to all of that, let me start uh, by reading some of the messages um, from the SMS line. Joel in Port Elizabeth says, please do not allow your guests to compare racism with religion. The example of blacks is inappropriate in this context. Surely Muslims should take responsibility and speak out against violence in the name of Islam. And then President Zuma is 100% correct. If the major Western military powers stopped meddling in the Middle East, the endemic violence and refugee migration would cease. This one says, how does ISIS keep getting new weapons? and new Land Rovers right under all the Western surveillance and satellites and drones. And why have they not been wiped out yet? This one says, aren't uh, ISIL and ISIS freedom fighters just like MK were? Should we be calling them terrorists? AK in Johannesburg's contribution, Hitler was a Catholic and yet no Christian was asked to apologize for his deeds. And this one, um, Paris attacks was insanity, but Islamophobia was, uh, was fashionable and happily accepted by the media and politicians for decades. Uh, the existence of Gitmo and Gaza is proof of this. And then Jonathan says, SK, if followers of Islam are peace-loving, the rest of the world wants to see it in society. Dave K in, East, in the Eastern Cape says, your guests seem to have the same agenda. We are not going to get soft on these killers. Why don't they go to the source and convince them to stop the killing of innocent people? KB says, please explain why the West and Russia took so long to intervene in Syria as opposed to uh, what they do in other countries. Was the civil war in Syria in their favor? And uh, Gideon in Kuruman says, thanks to the Prof for saying it as it is this morning. Okay, let me start with you, Prof Stremla. Well, goodness, there are so many ideas on the table and there is naturally a tendency to want to find an easy answer for a complex problem. If I start at first principles, I can't believe God plays favorites. We are either all his children or we're not all his children. So if we start on that proposition, his or her children, if we start on that proposition, then we have to figure out frameworks, the political frameworks that work, and that's a local and a very complex issue. Meddling in other people's business, I'm afraid, is going to be a fact of life. Climate change is going to drive that. Migrations drive that. Xenophobia in this country is a problem reflective of that. But somehow you've got to have those political frameworks. And I am struck that South Africa's leadership in the African Union, for example, has brought forth this commitment to intervene if there is atrocious human rights abuses. The AU is the only international organization that does that. There is a commitment by the AU to monitor every single election that happens on this continent, imperfect as they may be. They at least in principle say that we all are inherently equal. If you start from that proposition, then you work your way back to what kind of balances can be struck. As an American, we demonized black people ever since importing them as slaves. It became big business. And my boss at Carter Center, Jimmy Carter, who grew up under segregated South, had to persuade himself that the churches were wrong in preaching in the church that racism was God's will. Racism is not God's will. And that's the first principle, I think, from all this conversation is going to have to derive. The problem is we always have to do it in our own towns, in our own streets, in mm. our own families. We lived through it here in South Africa. Indeed um, you did. Under apartheid, you know, indeed, and it was did. actually institutionalized. Uh, Professor Essa? Uh, Professor Stremla, first of all, I mean, I think that your, I think that your uh, interventions on the, or that your responses are spot on. Uh, <clears throat> I think that... Uh, uh, one of the important things that I've learned from you is uh, to recognize the tremendous uh, value 
that there is to our country and that the efforts, however limited, uh, however in some cases decisions not implemented adequately, a lack of resources, that the African Union has been trying to nudge our whole continent. The fact, for example, that, uh, that the African Union will not broach uh, military coups right. will not recognize military coups. I think that uh, the, the attempt that there are to strengthen African responsibility for African crimes, African uh, solutions to African problems, I think that that's very, very important. And in the middle of a whole lot of international chaos, here is a continent that is struggling and serious about getting its own act together. One or two of the other points uh, that your uh, listeners made on the whole, very, very valuable comments. Um, sometimes one sits here and you think that you just have to respond to people. For once, I sat and listened to a whole bunch of listeners and learned a hell of a lot of things. <coughs> but I just want to comment on two things. <clears throat> the one is this whole conspiracy thing. I think it's very easy to just say, you know, that there is a conspiracy. And sometimes it is true. Uh, in the war on Syria, for example, we had the case where, um, and this is, a very, this is available on YouTube, where there is a discussion between a number of Turkish ministers, including the Minister of Intelligence, where they plan and discuss the idea of bombing a Turkish shrine inside Syria <clears throat> in order to serve as a pretext for Turkish bombing now of Syria. But the Turks are going to bomb this shrine about 12 meters from the Turkish border into Syria. And so occasionally there's a lot of truth that comes out 10, 20 years about, oh my God. But it's very difficult to act responsibly and politically and institutionally on the basis of conspiracies. But it makes it very difficult because <coughs> if you look at uh, Tony Blair and the admission a couple of weeks ago that the pretext under which they actually went into Iraq was a false premise that, uh, that, that they actually had weapons of mass destruction that was discovered in Iraq. I think it's worse than that. Uh, I, I think that the... Donald Rumsfeld gave it away when he said that they felt Saddam Hussein was being just like Gaddafi. Gaddafi in the United States had this tit-for-tat, remember, back and forth? And it's, it's very human politics, and leaders make mistakes, and leaders do matter, even though we have to clean up the mess after the leaders have made it for us on mm. our behalf. So that's why term limits are important. That's why accountability is important. That's why citizenship is a responsibility, because you've got to call these guys out. George W. Bush made America a, 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 a bad actor in the world, and Obama's trying to correct that. It matters. It's going to matter. The other question that people are asking is about the money trail, because how are these groups sustained? Not just, I mean, there is a money trail. I think that uh, ISIS has made a huge amount of money by selling oil on the black market. ISIS has made a colossal fortune by selling these historical artifacts, the artifacts that on the one hand you think that they are destroying, they, in a couple of dramatic moves, you know, they break down a few of these statues and so on. But the real deal is going on behind the scenes when they are carefully dismantled and being sold to other dealers in other parts of the world. And terrorism doesn't <clears throat> cost very much money. These guys don't have to have that much to do a lot of damage disproportionate. So that's why, again, the whole theme of this discussion is let's keep this into some perspective. And and then in keeping with that, you know, um, what what could possibly be the way forward? If you were sitting right now with uh, some of the world leaders, if you were sitting in, you know, a NATO council right now, what do you say to people? What should they be thinking right now? 
Well, the very first thing that I would say is once you're in a hole, stop digging. <clears throat> so <clears throat> stop your bombing, stop your interventions. But it's a far more challenging question than this. You cannot, it's very difficult to go to world leaders and say, stop your greed. Stop your military-industrial complex. Stop exporting arms. Stop manufacturing wars so that your interventions can be legitimated afterwards. Um, so I would say it's one thing speaking to world leaders. It's one thing taking this with a pinch of salt. It's quite another than going around mobilizing people against war and building up small communities where people begin to talk through these things with each other and just co-survive in the world alongside with each other. Ban Ki-moon had the right lead-in to this show by his words. If they can go back and listen to that, they do well. Well, there you have it, and uh, thanks a million for all your contributions this morning. And, of course, it's one that we have to keep our wits about us about uh, because it's so easy to get sucked in and, you know, to listen to all the conspiracy theories. But um, you have a responsibility to actually educate yourself. Um, let's just be a little more circumspect in uh, what we say, especially, uh, you know, when we go onto these platforms and just start spewing bile. Uh, let's think about it a little more before we do. Well, to our guests this morning, thank you so much, uh, Professor John Stremler and Professor uh, Farid Esak, and also to the production team this morning, uh, producers, Sisanda Jonas, Ntwaki, Shweshwe Tu, Miriam Moate, Mulebu Kheng Sibidi, Misho Shandale, our forum producers Ronald Piri and Jake Mukoma, senior producers Lungile Mabaso and Tlengiwe Mabaso, technical producer Ntogozo Kuzwayo, and executive producers Aubrey Sachia and Krivani Pele. And of course, I'm back with you tomorrow morning between uh, 6 and 9, but coming up next is the news with Kumbuzile Tabete.